1: Arches and Halos, professional brow grooming. Be bold, be you. Xfinity XFi is more than just fast. It's internet that gives you peace of mind security. Because if it's connected, it's protected. Yeah, even your robot vacuum. Can your internet do that? Learn more at Xfinity.com slash Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome
0: to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. For today's episode, we did want to issue a trigger warning at the top here. Um, we do have some stats and, and mentions of domestic violence, rape, and assault. So just putting that out there, if if today you're not in a space to deal with any of that stuff, just right. perhaps wait or, wait or skip it. Yeah,
1: <laughs> And I guess we can go ahead and put just a heavy societal issues as a warning as well, because we are going to be talking about defunding the police and what that means and what that could mean for women or those who identify as female. And um, yes, everybody's kind of tired. Uh, Everybody is kind of worn down with talking about it. But as many have said before, think about dealing with this every day. And then wonder how tired you really would be and why we should be talking about it and why it's important to talk about it. And today, it is a big topic locally and nationally, defunding the police. And what does that mean? So we know a few cities that have begun to have the conversation of cutting budgets or reallocating. And then there's also been the bigger discussion of disbanding the police force altogether. Um, And by the way, in 2014, Camden County Metro Police did start doing some of that work, uh, let go of all of their staff and rehired half of them back and then new officers, and downgraded the budget um, as well as the personnel. But apparently, as you looked a little deeper, some have argued that they didn't really defund, but just restructured. And though it was a good first step, the question is, was it enough to make a real difference because they ended up getting all their budget back and they still have the same amount of police officers, if not more, now? Um, So there's a kind of questions of who has it actually been done like we're asking, should it be done today? We did want to focus on this as the impact and how it might impact those who identify as female um, and just an overall who is going to be impacted and how effective would it be. But first, we're going to do a quick rundown of what it means. Right. So I think there has
0: been, as this conversation has been taking place a lot in our news and social media um, There has been some misunderstanding of what it means. So so what do we mean when we say defund the police? Um, So we've been talking a lot about police brutality and what it means to hold responsible those who use force and deadly tactics as a power play, how to hold people accountable in power. And it's been a conversation that has been talked about for a while, and usually after significant murders like Michael Brown Jr. and Eric Garner. And kind of like it sounds, redistributing the funds allotted to police departments for more community mental health level of care. That's pretty much the basic definition of defund the police. And we're not going to linger too long on it. This could be the first part of disbanding the police altogether and redoing the structure From the ground up, this also includes dismantling the idea that police are stewards for the protection of their citizens as we are witnessing police brutality for nonviolent offenders as well as nonviolent protest, which conflicts with these ideas, these ideas of protection.
1: Many cities have already started to debate uh, reallocating some funds to other areas, specifically for housing, healthcare, and non-punitive forms of rehabilitation, such as counseling and education. The budget for many of the larger cities are billions of dollars, which outstrips by millions and usually billions of dollars for other types of governmental programs. Most education budgets, as well as mental health budgets for counseling, drug treatment, or even employee care are significantly less. And a chunk of that police law enforcement funding is specific for military level of equipment and tactical training. And here we should point out the type of training does not seem to coincide with the level of responsibility that should be placed for such types of equipment. So we're giving these big giant guns without actually teaching about other ways to de-escalate and or how not to use them or how to hold them or how to use them responsibly. Yes, things you would... Hope (laughs) people would know. It would be common sense, but yet.
0: Yet. Um, Another thing we wanted to touch on pretty briefly is the history of law enforcement because this has come up by many different outlets. Um, So, yeah, we're not going to go too much into it, but just kind of context to give context of what we're talking about, the history of how the police and law enforcement in the United States got started some of the earliest forms of law enforcement like night watches can be dated back to the 1630s with boston and they weren't necessarily a popular idea and were privately funded and for profit purposes later in the 1800s boston created the first public funded law enforcement offices for the purposes of securing and protecting transports and supplies Somehow, the idea of the citizens to pay for this type of services came with the added notion that it was for the common good. And by the way, some say that the police force was used in the 1800s to not just protect business supplies and transports, but to also control and watch the immigrants moving into the colonies. By the 1880s, most of the major cities in the United States had law enforcement or
1: police force. So let's translate this to the South. Slavery was the driving force of profit and wealth. And because of this, police force and law enforcement was created as a way to preserve slave labor and the enforcement of that system. Originally created in the 1700s in the Carolinas as slave patrols, not only to enforce and threaten those who are enslaved, but to catch possible runaways and prevent slave revolts. Later, it would be used to enforce segregation and the harassment and oftentimes kidnapping of those who were freed from the enslavement. And by the way, the slave patrols changed after the Civil War, and they were known as the KKK, who would try to seize control.
0: In the 1900s, August Vollmer restructured policing. And he was known as the father of modern policing. His ideology included sociology, psychology, and social work into this idea of policing. He also felt college and further education should be a part of training and the requirements to be in a police officer. He even created a separate system for juveniles. Later came prohibition and organized crime, which pushed for more police and law enforcement, and so began the state and federal level of policing. T-men were created to ensure prohibition by the Department of Treasury.
1: So later, we could see the creation of the FBI. No longer leaning to the ideas of Vollmer, who had patrols on foot meeting neighbors and working for their own neighborhoods and use social work and psychology as a part of the method of policing, J. Edgar Hoover began a more forceful and more removed approach. Though underlying and overt racial discrimination has always been a part of inserting authority, we see more evidence of the injustice and unequal treatment as this modern civil rights movement makes impact. Moving on to other protests and rights through the years, we can see the conflict between protesters and law enforcement. And we have seen many tactics to end protests, whether through loophole arrests or curfews or even plain intimidation, which includes facial recognition technology being used by federal level of law enforcement.
0: Now, with the more recent practices of law enforcement, we see the uses of federal and state policies as ways of enforcing new criminal standards that typically target people of color, specifically the Black and Latin X communities, such as the Zero Tolerance Act and Stop and Frisk. Racial profiling was and is still actively used as a way of conducting suspect search and seizures. You're welcome.
1: Yeah, as in fact, uh, I think I've told this story a few times in my own training when I was part of a gang task force. One of the things that have been implemented, not only for uh, law enforcement, for police departments, but also for juvenile justice level um, of kind of practices, is to do gang training. Now, I typically would go in thinking that we were trying to understand gangs and also kind of see who was there, who isn't there, who's marked and who isn't marked. And one of the times that I went to the conference, the first thing that one of the trainers said, he was that, yes, we use racial profiling. You're welcome because this is how we can catch the big wigs in the gang world. Which by the way, there was a good diverse crowd for this. And I was there with two of my female black coworkers Uh, Mm -hmm. And we kind of just sat there in shock, hearing him say that out loud. And yes, he was white, by the way. So, to pretend like it's not happening is absurd. Now, this was, it's been a minute, five six five years ago, I think, that training was. But it's still relevant because that is still a mindset. Once placed in their minds as a right, they still use. Just want to put that out there. Mm -hmm. But speaking of training, all of that, and the group mentality. We did want to talk about the training course that is implemented. There are over 18,000 police departments in the U.S., and the standards for becoming an officer are fairly minimal. Training to become a police officer ranges from state to state, and it can range from 10 weeks to 36 weeks, so two and a half months up to nine months. And by the way, there are also retrainings every year, recertifications, but that almost equals out to be less than 10 hours, about 10 hours. Of course, they do have to do training on their own and they are required to do so, but they can pick and choose what they want, just as a reminder. Now, this typically includes some written tests, some understanding of local and state laws or bylaws and codes. Also includes gun training, firearms qualification, which they do have to do every year. For example, Georgia's post-training or peace officer standards and training is 11 weeks with requirements for recertification in gun training and elective training throughout the year, which can include specialties for sex crimes and crimes against children and etc.
0: When it comes to this conversation of why aren't there more trainings or more requirements for a job that has so much responsibility, several organizations are collaborating or trying to collaborate with departments to teach different methods. These efforts don't seem to be making too much of a difference. Some experts believe that this may be due to the training method of shadowing under more seniored, experienced police officers who have been trained with a uh, bias level of training, um, maybe sort of similar to what you were saying, Samantha, where um, that's just what's being taught by people who have been there longer, and that's just how it's been. Right. So that's being passed down. Um, And uh, possibly the people being shadowed, uh, they don't have the correct type of training that would implement intervention, social interaction, and de-escalation. So there is so much more, so much more of this conversation to unpack. But first, we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: This episode is brought to you by China. The China brand provides premium disposable tableware to celebrate moments of togetherness. Yes,
0: and right now that is more important than ever especially when we're all apart. So recently, I had a group and we had a, a socially distanced And there are classic white products that can work for any gathering or cut crystal plates and cups when you want to make something a little extra special. Disposable tableware keeps things simple and cleanup easy. net products are available wherever you buy groceries, including delivery or pickup.
2: Got to tell you about Best Fiends. It's the game pretty much everybody's talking about. Morgan number two plays this sometimes before we start the show. You know, it really challenges your brain with the fun puzzles, but it's also a very casual game, so it won't stress you out. Which is perfect these days, right? What's great is you can use the game as a way to connect with your friends and your family all while social distancing. The game is so much more than your average mobile puzzle game. It's five-star rated with over 100 million downloads, thousands of fun levels, and tons of characters to collect. You know, there are new in-game challenges and events every month, so the game's always fresh. You'll never be bored with it. You can even play the game without using Wi-Fi. So, here we go. You don't want to miss out on the game. Join millions of Americans and a lot of us here on the show who are already playing this fun puzzle game. Download Best Fiends for free on the Apple App Store or Google Play today. Just go over there, hit download Best Fiends for free, Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Check it out. I do think you'll like it. Friends without the R, Best Fiends.
0: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And we did want to talk about the
1: attitudes towards women in the police force. Right. I know that's kind of been a big conversation of uh, women have been implicit to the brutality as well and unseemly conduct as well. And we have seen several uh, shootings that it didn't involve women. But we've also seen several women who have taken the lead in trying to stop corruption um, and we won't talk about this too much, but the, uh, there are several police officers who have been fired and/or ostracized and blacklisted because they stood up or protected citizens. Um, we also know that we had a big viral video of a female black police officer chasing down the man who shoved an innocent protester, and she made sure to get in his face. I mean, that that's gone viral, and I think it is important to note that there are those who would want to stand for justice and. Of course, we would also want to say, put this caveat, we know not all cops are bad. That's not a thing. And we're not trying to say that that's implicit. But I think what we have a bigger conversation of, where's the majority's mentality in these issues? That makes sense. But yeah, we did not want to talk about women in the force. And though women have actually been involved in law enforcement since the early 1900s, they've not actually been a part of the team. Women were originally hired to be guards for female prisoners and was a part of the, quote, Women's Bureau. And it wasn't until the 1960s when New York female police officers sued for the rights to be promoted and to allow women to be officially a part of the police force and move up in the ranks.
0: Women are now allowed to be a part of the force, but research shows that there is a resistance to that. Statistics show that only 11 to 14% of police are women as of a few years ago. And there seems to be a lot of reluctance in having women being a part of the police force, whether it is due to the idea that women are not masculine or strong enough to be in such a... Uh, Tough masculine field, or one that is definitely perceived that way, are that women are too nurturing or are not physically capable
1: for completing the job. Right. This may also align with the idea that in order to be in law enforcement, a person must be tough and show no weakness. The militarized idea of police being crime fighters and must use brute strength in order to protect as part of the discrimination against women and whether they are effective as officers. The term pansy policing, often associated with the de-escalation tactics, which does take more time and more investment and more relationships, has been associated with how women would police which is not always true, as we talked earlier. Uh, But it does correlate to the use of force and brutality as a solution instead of de-escalation and why it's not used as an alternative.
0: I wonder if another piece of this, too, is sort of that... I know a listener wrote in about this for video gaming, but that idea that men feel like... I don't know, not all men, but that that idea of uh, when people feel like they can't be as gross or that whole boys will be boys, I can't do that around... Women And then I, I was thinking about this the other day because there's also been this conversation of, well, in our, a lot of our media, the police are painted in a different way than is accurate. Right. And I was thinking about how a lot of women that I've witnessed in, in these police procedurals or whatever are usually very masculinized and very like one of the boys. Right. Um, so I
1: wonder if that's a piece of no. it. Absolutely. I know while I was researching this, it does talk about the boys club being infiltrated and how they no longer could be who they were and whether that's being over the top masculine, over the top racist, over the top sexist, that they could not have that freedom to do so. And having a woman as a part of that meant letting go of the freedom to be blunt, quote unquote, and honest. And and of course, I guess we could talk about it being politically correct. In that sense of the term. And yeah, it definitely was part of that in them being angry, much like incels, being angry that their space was infiltrated by women and that it is being taken over by women in general. And it's not, but just having one woman means it's taken over. <laughs> right. I can no
0: longer be as gross as I want to be in the workplace or what? <laughs> um, with that, there have been statistics that show women as officers are more effective due to their communication skills and use of de-escalation. According to a criminal justice site, women are more likely to be effective in avoiding violence and, quote, diffusing potential violent situations and are less likely to, quote, engage in serious unbecoming
1: behavior. Which I feel like is such a nice way to say it. Engage in and un, unbecoming, unbecoming behavior. behavior. How very You're... unbecoming of you. <laughs> of
0: course, this is only a small conversation of the bigger problem and the toxic environment in a field that has power and a lot of say-so over citizens. But it is interesting to see the numbers and statistics of gender-specific behavior in a high-risk,
1: high-stress job. Right. So we have talked a lot about the history and just the background of policing, there are big questions. There are so many questions about what we do if there are no police. And it's not a question of not having police officers. It's just a question of how we see police officers and who that should be and how that should be restructured. But many people have argued, again, what happens if the police force loses funding or if they're disbanded. And we wanted to look at some statistics, specifically as it concerns women or those identifying as women. And of course, one of the big questions that we see repeatedly, who will you call if you are raped? Who are you going to call if you are assaulted? So let's get this out of the way. Let's go ahead and put this out there. And I know our audience, it's like preaching to the choir, but just in case you need a sound argument and or you want to just give our podcast to them to listen, they'll probably have to stop. I think at the beginning, but whatever. <laughs> they see the title won't even open it. <laughs> <We're> done. <laughs> and as most of you already know and has been discussed on the show, the amount of cases that are actually reported is minimal. According to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, or RAIN. three out of four rape sexual assault cases are never reported. And out of that, only less than half, and I say less than half because it's not quite the number, I think it's like 40-something percent, of those cases are actually arrested, then less than half of that ever lead to a court appearance or a trial, and so on and so forth. So yes, the numbers dwindle down. And as we have discussed previously, even if a case does go forward in a trial, we often see minimal accountability for perpetrators and more trauma for the victims.
0: And when we look at harassment and sexual assault perpetrated on campus, things have slowly reversed since the current administration, uh, as we discussed previously. Um, The Obama era, though, of revamping the system of complaints and allegations within the system due to the inaccurate and oftentimes ignored handling through the police system has allowed for a different setup for victims. And it has been, for the most part, more successful in establishing accountability and safer environments for victims. And as we recently discussed in our Title IX episode, it is slowly being uprooted. But for campuses that are maintaining the policy, it has shown greater level of trust for victims and those who are affected by harassment, sexual abuse, and rape. And I think that is an important thing here. Clearly, it's the fact that things are going unreported is bad. Um, but that's... Policing isn't what... Getting rid of policing, if it's that's how it is right now, like... I don't know there's a disconnect there in it for me. Like there can be other ways, right. like this um, where people might feel safer or feel more right. trust.
1: So it, we had talked about it previously in our trauma episode, when we had the investigator come on and talk about his informative uh, interviewing skills and training and how to talk to victims, about the fact that not many people are receptive of his type of policing and or investigation and the fact that it how important it is to get the trust of victims and he gave off so many more statistics in his yeah. own experience of seeing how many cases came through and didn't come through and i think it's important to remember that it's never been about reporting to police it's always been about accountability and how to ensure safe environments and who is doing that it's not necessarily police right and and if That
0: would be a good one to go back and listen to because I know he talked about how he didn't have the training and he didn't understand, like what he saw as someone being kind of forgetful, wherein we've talked a lot about how the brain works and the the stress and trauma and memory. And so he talks specifically kind of what we're talking about in specific with rape and sexual assault because he was saying,
1: I didn't have the training. I didn't understand. Right. And now that he knows, he knows that there's a better way, but is having a harder time to convincing other departments. Right. Which says a lot. Um, So, as we're talking about rape and assault, we also wanted to talk about violence against women and those who identify as women. So, in the past 10 years, a study shows that the number of women murdered has not decreased. The numbers are pretty steady, even increasing slightly in the last couple of years. Um, And women are more likely to be murdered by someone they know, and we've talked about this before, and most likely by an intimate partner. And the number of domestic and partner violence has not significantly improved in any way, as in fact, the numbers are still fairly steady.
0: And when it comes to the deaths of trans women in the past five years, we have not seen any decrease nor any real advocacy or assistance in deterring violence against trans and gender nonconforming individuals from the government or law enforcement. In fact, this year alone, the number of transgender or non-binary deaths have come close to the yearly number from the past three years, which begs the question, has policing deterred crimes against women?
1: And uh, we also wanted to look at policing women. The overall arrest numbers may have decreased in the last 10 years. There's a rise of arresting women, and specifically women of color. Majority of the arrests, like many others, are nonviolent crimes, such as theft, drug-related traffic, or probation violations, which could be due to anything from not paying fines to noncompliance and checking in. And more than half of the women are locked up in jails and not necessarily in state-level prisons, as in fact, most of those women have not been processed or seen in court, but are actually awaiting for trial. And many of those remain incarcerated due to not having funds or the assets to post bail. I think we should also note that these numbers are not the most accurate due to the data that is received by different organizations, as most of the Justice Department did not do data based on sex or gender until recently. And when I say recently, I mean in the last probably six years and in the last four years, they've doubled down in not doing that data, just to put that there. Um, And getting these numbers nationwide has been noted to be really difficult, again, which is another issue that has been a part of the bigger conversation, accountability and correct data, which we're going to talk a little bit more in a bit.
0: And if we look at the limited arrest and detention records of women, the statistics, um, not surprisingly, are also limited. The Death in Custody Reporting Act created in 2013 has not been helpful. Um, In fact, when two members of Congress, the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Gerald Nadler of New York, and the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Crime, Terrorism, and Homeland Security, Karen Bass of California, requested an investigation on why... The Department of Justice has not implemented the 2013 Act. They received a response from the current Inspector General that they would not be able to get any information till the end of the fiscal year 2020, which is in September of this year, of 2020, by the way. <laughs> the DOJ went on to say they will not be sending a report of the DCRA. Um, also worth noting, the original requirement was that it would be collected and submitted, quote, no later than two years after December 2014.
1: So, yeah, we could not find the statistics. The numbers are so limited. It is, I'm sure it could be, but I have a feeling it would be us going to D.C., looking through actual paper documents for anything.
0: Like one of those montage scenes in the movies yes. where they're doing all the research and they yes, get the old the-
1: newspapers down everywhere, and then they could flip through that little. What is that thing? It's not I a computer. have no idea, but I know exactly what you're oh talking my about. Gosh, so- I used to- I used those when I was younger. By the way, that's oh. how old I am. You're welcome.
0: Oh wow! <laughs>
1: <laughs> Shut up. Um,
0: and data collection is so 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 important. Um, just to say, very mm-hmm. very important. Um, we do have a lot more for you, but first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
1: This episode of Stuff Mom Never Told You is brought to you by HelloFresh. Get fresh,
0: pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh lets you skip those trips to the grocery store and makes home cooking fun,
1: easy, and affordable.
0: Arches and Halos, Professional Brow Grooming. Be bold, be you. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. So we did want to look at, in this idea of defunding the police, where would those funds originally meant for the police go and how would that help?
1: Right. Um, Yeah, so... Where does the where would the money go? That is the big question. If you're on social media and been watching the debates about this issue, then I'm sure you've seen the many sarcastic remarks saying things like, call the social workers or I'd like to see a social worker handle this in regards to recent violent crimes. Or for one guy who, one question of seeing a bear in the streets, in which, of course, <laughs> the replies to that was hilarious. Like, dude. You know there's wildlife and animal control, right? But whatever. Um, and many seem to not completely understand what social workers do. Uh, situations like domestic violence, child abuse, drug-related situations actually already start with social workers. So social workers are brought in to conduct many forensic interviews. And when I say forensic interviews, I'm talking about interviews in relation to crimes and or victimization. And we are oftentimes trained to come in and have a sit-down conversation with youth and also psychologists and counselors. So you have different people um, doing these types of interviews. And social workers complete investigations within homes and oftentimes have to involve police or law enforcement for assistance after the fact. Um, and But relationships between agencies are varied. And I say this as every, I went to several different areas. I've worked in different counties and each county had different relationships with different agencies, we'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. And many of juvenile justice systems have turned to restorative justice practices and seek social workers as an answer to rehabilitation over punitive justice. Social workers and social service providers have been implemented to train workers to practice therapeutic and restorative programs, as well as motivational interviewing and tactics that will help build relationships with offenders.
0: With budget cuts, um, typically we see mental health services being the first thing to be taken out. Um, Though federal grants may happen, the limited amount of funds, as well as the strict requirements and standards for people to qualify into a program, limits who is served and how long and often becomes a one-size-fit-all type of program. And just like anything within social services, if a program works, it is stretched beyond capacity and often becomes less effective due to the lack of skilled clinicians or limited amount of space in programs, which can be easily fixed with,
1: yep, more funding. And you'll hear in an upcoming interview that we did with a co-worker, a former co-worker of mine from the Department of Juvenile Justice, who is a counselor um, who has her degree in school counseling, how we talk about that we've witnessed many a times where things become ineffective because it's run in the ground, essentially. And we talk about burnout a little bit, and this is what causes burnout. Not only do we take the person that, hey, we found a great clinician, now let's give them 50 times what they can handle because you're the one good thing. And then we end up losing that program or that person, and it becomes a whole spiral. And by the way, with funds, as you have seen in the news lately, they are being threatened if they're doing something that specific authorities don't like. I don't know how else to say it. So they think you're being insulting somehow and or you're doing something a little too political or not political enough. They may just take away the funding and just threaten it. Um, We have seen this as we are talking about COVID-19 and the school systems and whether or not they're going to open the schools or not. And I find that so disgusting. But that is also a key proponent of why funding does not always work. Then again, we do have things like Title IX, which also reinforces better behavior too. So you have that hit and miss type of situation. But... Going back, if you look at cities that have already defunded or reallocated funds to community social services program, we see a decrease in police brutality and better treatment methods instead of just incarcerations. Cities like Eugene, Oregon, have become a model city where they have created a mental health crisis response with clinicians and medical assistants. They were given a budget of over $6 million, which, by the way, is significantly less than the overall police budget, but they have shown good results. Also, just a side note, according to one statistic from a few years ago, and we talk about this in that episode I'm telling you about, so get ready for the episode with my friend and I, and of course, Andy, but Andy was like, what the hell's happening? (laughs) Sorry about that. (laughs) Women make 85% of the social workers in the field. So increasing funds and money would be increasing pay for women in services like social work and counseling, which has some of the highest level of burnout and trauma. Just put that there. Yes. And then if we look at mental health
0: and crisis intervention, according to one report, police departments report that one in four of those involved in police shootings have untreated symptoms of a mental health diagnosis. And according to the treatment advocacy center, the likelihood of a person with a serious mental illness like schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, or other psychotic disorder are 50% more likely to see prison time for a misdemeanor. Now, These numbers are somewhat debatable as we don't see the bigger picture when it comes to uh, people who are not diagnosed or who are incorrectly diagnosed, as well as people who have multiple arrests and offenses. Sort of hard to suss all of that out. And yeah, as
1: we talked earlier, the data is not there. We have missing data. So what would be funded for those in need of medical assistance? The obvious answer is qualified counselors and therapists. Uh, Many systems have limited amounts of preventative measure as a way of pretrial requests. So that's another conversation is what are these pretrial requests? What can we do to to diffuse the situation? Um, All those different levels. So let's say we have theft or vagrancy. Instead of locking them up, what would counseling do? And by the way, free or affordable counseling um, right. as a preventative and not at an afterthought. And instead of bringing police as first responders, what would happen if we brought in a crisis intervention team? And by the way, more than half of the APA or uh, American Psychology Association members are women, and a majority of them are in governance position, which would also be a part of the macro level practice and nonprofits. Another need is
0: crisis intervention programs. Places like Eugene, Oregon, as we mentioned earlier, have already implemented the CAHOOTS program, or C-A-H-O-O-T-S program, or crisis assistance helping out on the streets. As of 2018, they were able to assist 24,000 calls with medical attention and crisis assessment. A crisis intervention training program has been implemented and taught to police forces by the National Alliance of Mental Illness, which they started doing in 1988. The program was created to help decrease the potential harm to the citizen as well as to the officer. The idea behind the program is based on the fact officers are often first on the scene in typically are not trained to handle a crisis situation in regards to someone with a mental health diagnosis. The program is ongoing and has been looked at and uh, provided to several departments. However, it is self-referred and is ongoing process, which often can be
1: forgotten during the heat of the moment. And here in Atlanta, the Department of Behavioral Health and Developmental Disabilities does offer assistance, but much like any mental health services around the country, the limited funds also limit who and how they can assist. For any case to be accepted, the extenuating circumstances has to be severe. So it becomes an afterthought instead of prevention or intervention. And it becomes kind of an aftercare process of how to treat them after the initial crisis which is not great. Mm -hmm. Um, And though Georgia did put in a crisis line a few years ago to complete assessments and referrals, not many people know to contact them. And by the way, the limited amount of services after an assessment and referrals are often roadblocks to actual treatment due to the cost and lack of insurance. So... There are some ideas already out there. It's just that no one seems to be catching on and or it's not funded or and or there's no continuation. So you have one one thought process or one great idea, but it stops there and it doesn't get to the root of everything that's happening. Sure.
0: Um, yeah, there's there's so much at play here. Uh, and, and one of the things we did want to talk about is education. Um, and And... This is such a huge, broad topic in itself. Um, We can look at it in specific ways when it comes to this conversation, Uh, pay raises for teachers, better employee insurance for all employees, and we could talk about universal health care, and we wouldn't even need to discuss this as an individual career employment thing, but that's another whole separate episode. Right now, that is a thing we must include in this conversation. Um, Better technology, equipment, funding for trips, and additional educational learning experiences after school programs, tutoring services and arts, extracurricular activities. We could go on and on about the things that are currently needed to better our current school system and provisions to all state-funded programs that would equal out the playing field and educational experiences. Um, and we're talking about this in terms of keeping people out of prison. Um, but we also need to look at what this looks like as a preventative measure and recidivism.
1: Right, so recidivism within the U.S. is over 56% likely after the first year of release and only grows every year thereafter. But research shows that with educational opportunities, the percentage goes down exponentially. Just with vocational training alone, the chances decrease by 30%. And the question is why? I think it's pretty simple. By providing education, the likelihood of attaining a job and opportunities for pay without resorting to crime grows significantly. Um, And by putting money into education, the amount of tax dollars being used for individuals being incarcerated, which, by the way, costs $93,000 per person on average, will decrease due to the decrease of recidivism. Note, these numbers come from GTL, which runs the inmate calling system, among other things, but the DOJ reports similar numbers as well as the Bureau of Justice. Yes,
0: and also note, probably everyone knows, but just in case, um, recidivism is... Uh, ending up back yes. in prison after you've been in there. Um, so we also want to talk about the uh, aspect of homelessness and housing and having affordable housing as a piece of this whole thing. Arrest among the homeless community is is a fairly high number, and among those that are arrested, uh, shows that the homeless population are more likely to be suffering from a diagnosed mental illness. And reports from specific cities such as L.A. have shown that one out of three arrests or interactions with the homeless involve some type of force or brutality. Many of those who are arrested for misdemeanors and infractions often are jailed for longer periods of time than the
1: rest of the population
0: due to no income, no assistance, and typically untreated mental health needs.
1: And there are multiple levels of trying to undo the systems that use jail and incarceration for solutions for homelessness. Um, Everything from mental health resources to actual homes and better living situations would alleviate the use of arrest and incarceration. Of course, this is just a few of the things that can happen if funding is redistributed to assist and fund community-based programs and services. And we could keep talking about other services like mentoring programs, family services, and many more. But we do want to talk about if this even is possible.
0: Right. Um, Though there have been a few cities that have started to look at the budgets and redistribute funding, such as California, New York, and Minnesota, there have also been cities that have disbanded and rehired police, but the results seem to be uncertain as either again, the data isn't clear, isn't there, or the policies did not change um, in the greater
1: picture, or it's... Pretty new in some places, right. so and specifically, we just don't know. Uh, we were as we were researching Camden Metro Police Department has come up repeatedly, and as we said at the beginning of the show, it doesn't necessarily show any change, but because even though they did one thing, they didn't do the other. If that makes sense, um, though, they yeah. did put a lot more of their budget into police uh, de-escalation programs and community health programs, and and it does show that there have been uh, significant. Decrease in arrests for them since then. However, there are still reports from the citizens saying that they have had many a times where they've been profiled and or uh, mistakenly arrested and used the same tactics that we've seen and same um, alarming patterns that we've seen in the bigger picture. So it's kind of that, well, okay, but... Um, And what we are seeing in improvements are the ones that like Eugene, Oregon um, and other cities, and there are several other cities that I didn't point out but didn't want to talk about, where they've been implementing more things like crisis intervention and or mental health services as part of the first response. So that's definitely where we need to look at. But again, data is unclear when they don't want to give it to us. But yes, this is a big, big conversation. And redistributing funds is a giant topic. And though it is a bigger part of what reformation and undoing a military level of policing may take, there are a lot of things that we need to do, we need to take a close examination of. But we're not going to go into that because it's, obviously we've taken a lot of the time just talking about funding and defunding and redistributing money and allocating funds. Um, But... Some of the things that you might want to look into and we may look into later on are topics that include undoing qualified immunity, the role and power of police unions, and the continued military training tactics for community police officers. And overall, if we talked about disbanding police, what does that actually mean? Um, But yeah, so there are other people who are having this bigger conversation and we did want to focus in what it looks like for women. But because the subject is so new and because it is so... uh, contentious, we don't always have that specific data. And typically we don't have that data until after the fact. And we all know that. But as you can tell, if we were to rethink and redo some of the things, it would impact the whole entire community. It would impact a lot of the marginalized people who have been continuing to live in fear for the entirety of their lives because the system is not where it should be.
0: Yeah, and um, this topic's obviously very, very dense and for some people very, very personal. Um, And almost every section we talked about like education or social workers, homelessness, uh, mental illness, in some aspects, in a lot of ways, do impact women more, um, whether it's because they're the ones doing the work in that field or whether they're the ones being more impacted by those issues. So this is a really important conversation, and um, it can get really heated, and it is very complicated, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't have it. Um, It's very, very important, in fact, because of all those things. Yes, so um, there are a lot of big questions left uh, to examine and a lot of details to hash out and discuss, and uh, as we've said multiple times, data that we need. Um, So if there's any particular aspect of this that you think would be really beneficial for us to dig into, you really want to hear more about, please, please let us know. Yes,
1: please. And those who are actually in that field and those who are working for things like the crisis intervention, please reach out to us. Tell us what's going on. Tell us what you see and tell us what you think needs to happen to help uh, reformat the system for the better. Right. Yes, please. And you can email those things to our
0: fancy email, Stuff Media Stuff at iHeartMedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You or on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. Thanks, Doobie. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Dear Rocker Season 2 is a raw, honest, strange, and entertaining story about finding yourself in your early 20s and a lifelong relationship with music. It's hosted by me, Chelsea Erson, and is executive produced by Jake Brennan of Disgraceland. Dear Young Rocker comes to you from Double Elvis Productions and iHeartRadio. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.